This episode of Hub Dialogues is a special presentation with Hub advertiser Pathways Alliance. The goal of each episode in this podcast series is to provide Hub listeners with the latest insights and analysis by industry experts and leaders who are acting on Pathways' ambitious call to decarbonize Canada's oil sands production and reach net zero emissions from operations by 2050. For more information on Pathways, visit pathwaysalliance.ca. Hi, Roger Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, the first in our series of interviews in partnership with Pathways Alliance. We're going to be unpacking Pathways' ambitious goal. This is set on behalf of the major oil sands producers in Canada to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. What are the technologies, the public policy? Um, what are the challenges and opportunities of this ambitious project for Canada, for Alberta, for our energy sector? We kick off this series with Kendall Dilling, the president of Pathways Alliance. He's going to unpack it all for us, give us that top level view on those challenges and opportunities. The next voice you're going to hear is me, Rudyard Griffiths, in conversation with Kendall Dilling, the president of Pathways Alliance. Kendall, welcome to the Monk Dialogues. It's a pleasure to be here, Rudyard. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. You know, we're all about kind of public policy at the hub, about big, ambitious challenges and goals. Pathways is kind of at the heart of that. You got an ambitious goal. You're trying to do something pretty important. Why don't you just give a sense to our audience to begin with about what is the, what's the strategic thing that you're trying to solve? How big is this problem? And I want you to begin this conversation by defining that for us. Sure. So at the highest level, the challenge is that we are on a path to a low carbon future as a planet for obvious reasons. And of course, you know, using fossil fuels is a concern in that regard to the extent that they're one of the largest contributors of greenhouse gas emissions. The oil sands sector is responsible for about 12% of Canada's emissions. And so we realized we had to come to the table and be a big part of the solution. There will be a transition occurring globally, but for some period of time, we're going to continue to use fossil fuels. So our thesis at Pathways is really that for as long as those fuels are needed, and by the way, and we can talk about this more later, heavy oil will probably be needed forever for, if nothing else, non-combustion end uses, which are you know things like asphalt and petrochemical feedstock growing carbon fiber markets and those kind of things. So the, the, the barrel of oil is still valuable in a lot of ways. We just need to use it in a low GHG, low carbon context. And so the most important thing we, and we can do in the near term is decarbonize the production of our product here in Canada that will help us provide that barrel to global markets in the most responsible way possible. And we actually think it can become a competitive advantage over time because not every oil basin out there is going to be able or willing to decarbonize. And so 
the world will more and more require decarbonized barrels and decarbonized forms of energy writ large. And so we actually think this can you know, become a competitive advantage for Canadian heavy oil as we provide the most responsibly produced barrel of oil to global markets. Let's talk about net zero, because this is really, again, core to your kind of mission at Pathways. You want to get to a net zero emissions for this sector, for these major oil sands producers. What does that mean to you? You know, to the layperson who hears the term net zero, I think, you know, there's some confusion, maybe some hype, frankly, around it. Unpack that term and what it means to you in Pathways. Sure. And, and, and I take your point. Uh, everybody's got a net zero plan these days. It's almost become uh, de rigueur to just say you have a net zero plan. And in the case of oil sands, we actually worked at this hard for a couple of years before we ever went public with it because we, you know, we're an industry of, of engineers and scientists for the most part who take very seriously those kind of things. And so we wanted to make sure we actually had a credible technological pathway to say, yes, by 2050, we could be producing our product with no greenhouse gas emissions associated with the, our operations. And, you know, luckily we, in the oil sands, are in a position where we can credibly do, uh, you know, say we can do that with, without a need for some future breakthrough technology that doesn't exist today. That said, we continue to work on lots of new technologies, over 70, in fact, are kind of in our our current funnel right now in terms of technologies we're looking at bringing to bear on this net zero journey. But we have enough in our toolkit today with existing game day ready technologies that can get us to net zero. Carbon capture and storage, of course, being one of the, the most significant levers. But there'll be a role for hydrogen. There'll be role for fuel switching. There'll be a role for biofuels. There'll be roles for energy efficiency and potentially other technologies like like small modular reactors um, we've talked about as another way to potentially decarbonize down the road. But some of those technologies like SMRs aren't kind of ready, game day ready. So we'll use the ones we have in our toolkit to make a, a really good stab at this by 2030, you know, you know, something on the order of 25% of the way there. Because we do recognize you can't say, you know, we have a net zero plan and man, watch what we're going to do in the late 2040s. <laughs> You'll never get that runway from society, from government, from stakeholders. So you do have to show, and we will, and are, are committed to showing significant progress by 2030. And hopefully that gives us, you know, the credibility for people to say, okay, they actually can and will do this. And, and they'll, you know, give us that additional time required to get all the way to net zero. And again, in our case, it's technologically feasible. It is ex it's, it's expensive. We estimate for all sands it'll be in the you know order of seventy to eighty billion dollars of investment to fully mitigate all the emissions associated with our production. But again, the the value proposition is that as you do that, not only do you future proof this industry so it can continue to develop, provide economic benefits to the province for many decades to come. It also sets you up to be global leaders in these technologies. And there's a bit of a race on right now. And I'm sure, you know, everybody's seeing it and you see it in spades and with the Americans and what they've done with the Inflation Reduction Act. It's estimated they're going to bring about a trillion dollars to their green tech sector through that IRA. And Europe is, of course, um, very aggressively working at, at these technologies too, because 
what everybody knows is that globally, this is a 150 to $200 trillion exercise to decarbonize global energy systems. And so those who learn how to use these technologies first, they apply them domestically, but then there's also going to be this huge global market to go and sell our wares as leaders in these technologies to the rest of the world who will desperately need them. Let's talk about the technology that seems to be getting most of the attention right now, and that's carbon capture, carbon sequestration. What has you excited about this technology? Because as a layperson, you know, I have a sense here that we're still kind of at the prototyping stage, but we're, we've shown some proof of concept. And I, is it right, Kendall, that the challenge now is scaling this technology up to deal with the volumes of emissions that it effectively could mitigate once it's up and running at scale? Yeah, I think you've, you've captured that exactly right. This is not new or unproven technology. We're doing CCS as we speak. There's multiple commercial projects in Canada and around the world. The, the Quest project, which is in fact majority owned by CNRL, one of the Pathways members just outside of Edmonton, has been you know, operating a CCS project for seven years, very successful, injecting into the exact same reservoir that we would propose to inject into for our Pathways project. So we don't look at this as having technological risk per se. There's some scale-up risk. Nobody's done it quite at the scale we're talking about. Our project, if we're able to get it executed on the timeline we're, we're hoping to, would be 10 times bigger than any existing CCS project in the world. So so scale is real and it's big. And and there's also issues just with execution, right, in terms of the supply chain required for that level of investment. Our CCS project is about $16.5 billion. And just finding the people to do the work. You know, our project, we estimate, will generate twenty five to 35,000 direct jobs during the construction phase. And then, of course, thousands more during operations or thousands of permanent jobs during operations. And that's only for phase one. And if we're successful in phases two and three follow, I mean, and again, we're only one project in one sector. Uh, you've got cement, you've got steel, you've got power generation, petrochemical, all these other sectors who are also, you know, pursuing similarly aggressive decarbonization plans. So just, you know, finding the manpower and the supply chain support to execute that volume of work is going to be a challenge globally. And it doesn't help that the U.S. is right now sucking <laughs> Every dollar, every, every brain, every um, bit of supply and resource they can into their ecosystem. So we're going to be competing against that too. So that that's probably where we see the risk is more not technological risk. These are pots and pans and pipes and wells that we use all the time in our business. The technology is very well understood. And, and the geology, you know, we are so fortunate in Alberta to sit on arguably the best, if not very close to the best CO2 storage geology in the world with massive capacity, and it's got all the right attributes you would want for permanent safe storage. It's deep, it's overlain by multiple layers of cap rock and seal to ensure that the CO2 stays down there permanently. I mean, this is a, this is a global jam. I mean, heavy industry around the world would give their eye teeth to be co-located with a resource like that. And, you know, in fact, you'll see industry relocating here to access it and and right now in Alberta, there's a couple of big petrochemical plants uh, on the verge of FID that you'd probably be aware of in the capital region, you know, from uh, Dow and Air Products. And, you know, we know that those projects are happening here because of access to CCS, because they had their own net zero 
plans and ambitions as a sector. And so, you know, historically in the last decade, when Canada had been losing lots of industries to other lower cost jurisdictions around the world, this will actually bring them back because they know they can have access to reliable CCS infrastructure. It also spurns other technologies like hydrogen as an example. You know, hydrogen, we know is going to be an important part of this transition. And at scale, at least in, in the near term, the, the most economic way to produce hydrogen is what you call a blue hydrogen, where you split natural gas into hydrogen and CO2, which is what we do in our operations in oil and gas all the time. But once you have CCS infrastructure in place, now you've got a home for that CO2. So instead of it being released into the atmosphere, it gets injected and this hydrogen becomes a, a clean source of energy. So you'll see a whole bunch of you know, blue hydrogen spinoffs from having CCS infrastructure in place. Direct air capture is another one. You see um, lots of excitement around that in the world and pathways is part of that technology work stream as well. And that's where you take CO2 directly out of the atmosphere. And to date, it's not, you know, hugely economic or, or, and, and it needs to be scaled, but you know, the, there's a, there's a good global foundation to that technology, but again, all contingent on having somewhere for the CO2 to go. And if you get the CCS infrastructure in place, you could see a whole bunch of direct air capture springing up as associated with that. So, there's a lot of reasons to be excited about CCS. And we really have a bona fide card to play as a global leader. Mm-hmm. That is so neat. That's something I did not know about the geology of Alberta and parts of Western Canada, that you're ideally positioned to be that reservoir to safely and permanently sequester, store uh, the carbon that is you know, extracted through these different means. Fascinating stuff, Kendall. It, it, is there a technology that, you know, because you're so immersed in this, that you think the public maybe isn't aware of that the Pathways is excited about. You know, carbon sequestration seems to like command all of our attention when it comes to solutions around decarbonizing energy production and manufacturing. You've mentioned direct capture from air. I'm just wondering if there are some other emerging technologies or innovation that you're seeing that you think it could be promising and may well become better known in the years to come precisely because they could be highly effective. Yeah, no, for sure. There's, there's a lot, Rudyard. Um, and CCS, I will be the first to admit, is it's a bit of a bridging technology in a sense, in that in the long run, you want to stop producing CO2 in the first place. Capturing it on the back end and storing it is great in that we can do it and it immediately reduces greenhouse gas emissions. But A, I mean, there is finite storage available. Now, we're lucky again in Alberta, we have, you know, literally hundreds of years worth of storage available. So it's not a short <laughs> runway, but it is finite. You, that's not the solution for the rest of time. Uh, so we continue to work on technologies that will prevent a, you know the creation of the CO2 in the first place. And so those could be things like, instead of burning uh, methane, you split it into hydrogen and CO2 and use the, the hydrogen. You know, you can produce green hydrogen as well through other technologies. So hydrogen certainly is one of them. I mentioned small modular nuclear reactors. That's potentially a very interesting technical fit in the oil sands, because what we really need in the oil sands is heat to generate steam. That's what we put underground to mobilize the heavy oil. We, people think of nuclear as electricity plants, but nuclear 
small modular nuclear can also be configured to be primarily a thermal plant. And so that could work really, really well for us where you have a small modular nuclear plant associated with several oil sands operations and that provides the heat for the steam in a, in a GSG-free uh, manner. We are working on other ways of not needing the steam in the first place, right? There's other extraction methods that are less energy intensive. Those are generally referred to as solvent extraction, where you would, instead of putting steam underground, you could put in another light hydrocarbon like propane or butane, other types of hydrocarbon that go in and, and mobilize that heavy oil without the thermal input. So that would, those would be just a few of the ones. So again, I think we, it's good. It's probably, we can think of it as CCS. You put in, it has the immediate needle moving ability of reducing greenhouse, absolute greenhouse gas emissions really quickly. And that buys you time to work on a bunch of these other technologies such that eventually you're not even producing CO2 in the first place. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. So I like this thinking. You're not, as you say, going to wait to 2049 to come up with the big solution, the, you know, the answer to the $64 trillion question. Instead, it's about layering these technologies in, doing what you can do now, innovating, iterating as you go. Let's talk, Kendall, a little bit about the policy framework, because that's what the Hub really likes to share with our listeners is some insights into how public policy kind of wraps around these bigger, in your case, industry and environmental challenges. You've mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act of the United States, uh, which is a huge play by the Biden administration across a whole bunch of different sectors, from green tech to microprocessors, we can go on and on. What's happening here in Canada? Do we have the basis for you know, the policy planks, the policy pillars to facilitate this transition? Is there more that could be done? What's your feeling about the policy landscape in Canada right now? Yeah, great question. It's definitely coming along and maturing. We've got lots of really good foundational pieces in play. You know, for whatever reason, our approach tends to be a more complicated one than what they've taken south of the border. They also have a bigger wallet than we do. And so they've taken the pure carrots approach, as we would call it. There's very little regulatory backstop or, or compliance obligation on industry down there. They're just saying, hey, we want you to make these transitions. So we're going to put a bunch of incentives in place. And it's very, very clear, easy production tax credit for every time you abate, you're going to get this amount of money for this number of years really easy for developers to get their head around the economics and and you know make those decisions on on deploying capital. Canada has a more complicated mix of instruments. We do start with a price on carbon, which the Americans don't have, right? We do have carbon tax, for lack of a better word, in Canada, a broad-based one. 
And so that actually gives us a leg up in that you're starting from a basis of having already introduced that across the economy. But it in and of itself isn't enough to incent this kind of massive investment to occur or to compete with the Americans for that capital or the Europeans for that matter. So they started layering on some extra pieces and the investment tax credits that you've seen come out in recent federal budgets for CCS, but also across a broad range of renewable and green tech areas. That's, that's another really, really important piece of the pie to help companies with that big upfront capital cost, right? Like that's the challenge with these, with decarbonization is that that first wave of infrastructure is often very, very expensive and prohibitively expensive for industry to do that on their own. And so that's why, you know, across the world, you see governments coming in in a partnership model to co-fund to get that first generation of technology in place and then trust that once that hurdle is over, you get over that hurdle, then the costs come down, typically come down quickly and a whole bunch of other, you know, ancillary economic benefits will occur as a result of that. But that, that first hurdle is the challenge. So I would say Canada and, and the province too, by the way, the province of Alberta in the last budget, you know, made some significant commitments from through, you know, APIP, that's the Alberta Petrochemical Incentive Program. They're looking at expanding that to cover some of these green technologies like CCS. And because we have a mandatory price on carbon, there's also this revenue generating mechanism in the province, the tier regulation, which is, you know, that mandatory uh, GHG compliance regime that heavy industry operates under. So that generates a lot of money that can be redeployed into these decarbonization efforts. So again, bits and pieces coming together. As we stand today, unfortunately, there's still a gap between, you know, what is on offer in certainly in the US and a lot of places in Europe. But the governments continue to be, you know, really, really open to working with us. We have fantastic dialogue in Edmonton and in Ottawa and lots of great conversations with all the right people trying to figure out how we can make a made in Canada solution that can be competitive, allow us to preserve the competitive advantage we have in some of these areas. Because, you know, Canada has been an early mover overall on green tech, and we've got a head start on most of the world and a lot of these technologies. It's now a question of how do we not lose that, you know, and I, I'll share this, not that we're here to talk about LNG, but I think it's a really good example of where if we're not careful, we can sit on the sidelines and watch these opportunities pass us by. I personally think it is a national tragedy that we don't have multiple LNG export facilities on both coasts of this great country. But we kind of got in our own way on that for various reasons. And I've watched literally hundreds of billions of dollars in LNG get deployed around the world. And Canada had a great card to play. We've got massive, low-cost natural gas resources, and it could have been going and, and, and displacing coal and other heavier emitting forms of energy around the world. And yet we largely sat on the sidelines and watched that opportunity pass us by. We're just getting a few <laughs> crumbs at the end of here. Um, and I hope, you know, we do get those West Coast projects uh, through. But, but that's an example of we can't let that happen to us on this next wave of, of decarbonization infrastructure. But this is not our God-given right. We have to go and earn it and, and fight for our piece of the pie. Yeah, no, it's an important cautionary tale and one that we've written about a lot at the Hub. Again, 
unforeseen things happen in the world. Vladimir Putin invades Ukraine. Suddenly Europe faces an energy crisis. You know, our export of natural gas could have not only been facilitating, as you say, less carbon intensive fuel use around the world. It could be supporting our allies, supporting our NATO partners at a moment of intense geopolitical stress and uncertainty. And look, I think that's going to continue, unfortunately, uh, for years to come. If there was one policy idea that isn't maybe in the mix right now, Kendall, that you think could be really helpful to this ambitious call to action that Pathways are putting forward of net zero you know, emissions from the oil sands by 2050, what would that be? What's, what's maybe not happening or hasn't come to the fore yet that could be really helpful to industry at this moment? Yeah, well, the, the one, and this is, you know, really simple in that it would be just taking a page out of the Inflation Reduction Act playbook. Canada has got pretty good supports in place for the capital expenses through these investment tax credits. But there's very little in place for ongoing operation of costs, right? Because these, a lot of these technologies are not just expensive to build, there's a substantial cost to operate them over time. And so production tax credit, like the Americans have, where you just know with great predictability that you'll be able to get a, a guaranteed revenue stream for the, well, you know, what we would call carbon credits or the, the abated tons that you abate through whichever technology you're applying, that that would be the missing ingredient to level the playing field is something like a production tax credit to provide that operating cost support. So just to put this all together, Kendall, what I'm sensing is that, you know, this is an opportunity for Canada. You know, as you say, that one, there's an, a really important contribution that we can make to climate. We can pioneer technologies possibly that other people adopt around the world. But there's also maybe the idea here, Kendall, that Canada can create a flywheel here, an economic flywheel, whereby we're facilitating these public goods through innovation and through the development of these technologies at scale. And then the products that we're producing themselves begin to capture market share precisely because they're they're lower carbon in terms of the manufacturing of, of the energy itself. Is that ultimately the goal here, that the ambition, you know, could be both to do good things for the climate, but also to, I don't know, kickstart in Canada, a bit of an innovation culture around this big challenge? Yeah, you, you articulated that so well, and I agree 100%. And we need to actually start reframing this in terms of this is an investment opportunity as opposed to a cost or a subsidy or, you know, however people might frame it. The, the world economy is going to shift dramatically in the coming decades. We are going to have an industrial revolution all over again in a much compressed time frame. Whether we like to admit this to ourselves or not, Canada and the quality of life that we all enjoy and have enjoyed for many generations is largely built on us being a resource-rich country and producing and exporting those resources. Those resources are going to continue to be in demand, but they have to be delivered in a low-carbon context in order to stay relevant. And so this is a massive investment, yes, but it is about investing so that we can continue to deliver those resources responsibly to the world, manage the carbon associated with that process, 
And that not only kind of preserves our existing economy, and, and this isn't just about oil and gas. I mean, steel, cement, petrochemical, power generation, like everybody, you know, all these big heavy industries in Canada have a similar challenge. And we want to, to your point, preserve those core contributors to the Canadian economy. I mean, just the oil and gas sector will contribute $50 billion in taxes and royalties kind of the last recorded year and, and we maybe a little bit lower this year because prices have gone down a bit, but still, you know, directionally, incredibly material contributions to the, to the, to the economy, as do all those other sectors. We, we need to preserve that and then build on a whole new green sector as well, because that's going to be, like I say, in huge demand globally. And Canada has, you know, we have bona fide cards to play right now. For sure, we're a global leader in CCS. We can be a massive leader in hydrogen. You know, the oil and gas industry and, and that people need to, people just assume sometimes that technology is just going to leapfrog over the oil and gas industry and we won't need oil and gas anymore. And, and demand for oil and gas will decline over time as other forms of energy come online. There's no question about that. But the oil and gas industry itself will transition too. I mean, we are the biggest engineering conglomeration on the planet, like incredible resources of you know, the, the engineering minds and the technology and the know-how. And so you see that the whole industry is shifting right now. So, you know, hydrogen is a great example of that. Everyone's excited about, you know, hydrogen in the future. Well, guess what? The oil and gas industry is the biggest producer of hydrogen on the planet by far. And we do molecules like that is our core business. And the, f- the f- green future is not just electrons. You need electrons and molecules. Electrons can't satisfy every single energy need. And so figuring out a way to do molecules without emissions like hydrogen, biofuels, you know, aviation fuels, all these different things that we're working on for those products that aren't those industries that can't be electrified. The oil and gas industry is by far the best suited industry to pivot quickly and turn our resources to those new technologies. And so uh, you'll see us doing that. And so again, it's not a question of we don't need oil and gas anymore. It's we have to stop the unabated combustion of fossil fuels as soon as we can. But those products used in different low carbon ways will still be of, of incredible importance. And so Canada can continue to be a global player in, in all those areas if we do this right. Thank you, Kendall. You know, one of the reasons I was excited to have this partnership with Pathways is that I really appreciate the spirit of your organization. It kind of reminds me a bit of the X Prizes. You got this big goal, 2050, net zero, and yeah, you're marshalling a lot of energy, a lot of creative ideas, and some great public policy around something that is ambitious. And we need more ambition in Canada these days. There's too much negativity often, too much throwing up our hands or stopping us from having the types of conversations we need to, you know, push the country forward. So thanks for coming on Hub Dialogues today, kicking off this series with Pathways. Uh, Really appreciate your time. It was an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. This episode of Hub Dialogues was a paid promotional partnership with Pathways Alliance. 
For more information about Pathways and their plans to decarbonize Canada's oil sands production to reach net zero emissions from operations by 2050, visit pathwaysalliance.ca. Are you a leading industry group with an important public policy message? If so, be sure to check out the Hub's new digital marketing platform. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca forward slash marketing.